tips and strategies for job hunting, how to answer the toughest and most important interview question, and what to do after you're criticized by someone else, all coming right up. This is episode number 175 with career development expert and author of six best-selling books, Vicki Oliver. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My mission is to help you gain clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, and then provide you with the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person become a reality. Today I bring you Vicki Oliver, who is the author of six bestsellers, including Bad Bosses, Crazy Coworkers, and Other Office Idiots. And she's gonna tell you about how to handle all those people in the workplace that bug you. Be sure to take a screenshot and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you to let me know you're listening. Without further ado, here's to getting closer to your best you with Vicki Oliver. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super pumped today for today's interview. I've got the one and only Vicki Oliver with me today. I just want to say thanks, Vicki, for spending the time with me today during this uh, quarantine life that we got going on. Thank you very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So Vicki is a leader in the career development space. She's an expert in the space, an author of six best-selling books. I've got a couple right here behind me, one of them being Bad Bosses, Crazy Coworkers, and Other Office Idiots, 201 Smart Ways to Handle the Toughest People Issues. I've got Live Like a Millionaire Without Having to Be One, and then a couple of other notables are 301 Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions and 301 Smart Answers to Tough business etiquette question. So I know we're going to dive into some of the material that you discussed in some of those books, but as we just discussed before we hopped on, we want to make sure that we do target a lot of the conversation towards what we're going through right now, being in this life of being quarantined and how that impacts the business world and how that impacts communication amongst people in the business setting. But the way I'm going to want to start before we dive into that is I want to ask you what made you want to kind of get into this career development space and answering these tough questions space? Right. So thank you for asking me that. I used to be in the advertising business and I grew up in advertising. I was writing copy and then later I grew into a creative director in advertising. And advertising was always a bit of a revolving door. And I always felt that I was looking for a job. I would have a great job and then, you know, maybe the place would lose a client or something. And I was constantly, constantly looking for a job. And then I would get a great job, you know, working for a living legend, you know, et cetera. And I just felt like, wow, I am getting so much job hunting experience. It is unbelievable. And maybe, maybe I should write about that. Now, later, there were about a hundred times when I literally thought to myself, I should be writing about job hunting. And later, as I grew up, you know, from a junior copywriter, I mean, I started as a receptionist actually. So, but later, as I grew into a creative director and I was hiring people, they would roll into the ad agency and they wouldn't really know my name and they wouldn't know our clients and they wouldn't really know much about why they were there. And I would be thinking to myself, boy, you are blowing this interview, buddy, you know? And after they would leave, I would think to myself, I should write that book about job hunting. And there were just hundreds of times that I thought it. It was just a weird situation. So so one time I was in the middle of a job search and I decided to write about my job search and I wrote about it and it was published in Adweek magazine. And I asked people, 
is anybody else experiencing this? Tell me what you're going through. And I gave them my email address and I got over a hundred responses. And I called Adweek Magazine and I said, is this normal? Is this normal? A hundred responses to this article. Is that what you normally get? And they said, no. And I said, well, what do you normally get? And they said, oh, one or two replies. So they said, you know what? Start sending us your best responses. And so Adweek ended up running in their editorial, the letters column, responses to my piece. And then I began to think, you know, I think I've touched a nerve and I think there's more here. And so I started writing additional articles about job hunting and that's how it began. And then eventually I said, you know, I have enough material. I think I'll just try to write a book. But the problem was I had never published anything before. I was just a copywriter doing commercials, writing commercials and radio spots and print ads, but not a book. So that became challenging, like how to Mm -hmm. find an agent and how to find somebody to publish my book. Gotcha. So obviously there's probably a lot of things that can come out of the question that I'm about to ask, but in job hunting, was there maybe one, two or three things that you kind of had an aha moment with or a realization that these are things that you needed to do that were really going to maximize the likelihood that you got the job that you wanted? Was there ever like those couple of things were like, oh my gosh, this is huge. I need to start doing this and I need to communicate to other people that this is going to be really helpful. Yeah. So for me, and remember that book was published really basically before the internet revolution, I would say. So I found that for me, keeping meticulous family trees of Mm. people, who had recommended the person, how I knew the person, how that person knew the person, that was like, to me, the biggest thing. And also not being shy, like just telling everybody, I need a job, you know, who do you know? Can you give me five contacts, please? And I did it, I, I did all, basically all my job searches that way, back then, because, you know, it was kind of before the internet revolution. That said, you know, I feel like tools like LinkedIn make it very easy, much easier to meet more people. Like in the old days, like, you know, 10 years ago, you really couldn't do that so much. But now you can meet many thousands of people if you know what you're doing with social media. Yeah, no doubt. But I feel like those couple of things that you mentioned, keeping a meticulous family tree and don't be shy about wanting or needing a job. I feel like those things are super transferable to the even now that we're in this Internet space where you can meet a lot more people because those things right there increase the likelihood of getting a job because it's a much more personal type relationship. Like A lot of times it's easy to connect with a lot of people on LinkedIn but not a lot of those connections you feel a true connection with. But if you do these things, then you can really build a better relationship with those people. Yeah, you can. I mean, I tend to look at social media as leading to an in-person meeting with the person. Now, it may never happen, you know? I mean, I think right now I have something like, um, you know, 805, you know, Facebook connections, and I have maybe uh, about a thousand LinkedIn connections and probably, and they're not, there's not that much overlap between those two actually. So, you know, is it likely that I'm going to have eight, uh, you know, 1800, 1800, you know, separate meetings with people? No, but I do always enter into a relationship feeling like I might meet the person. Mm -hmm. I might, 
you know? And so I want to be an ambassador, you know, for my brand and for myself and be completely professional. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that last part that going into a social media relationship, you want to go in with the assumption that you are going to meet them in person. Because I think that little mindset shift will actually make people talk a little bit differently with that person or, or have a conversation a little bit differently with that person going in with that mindset. And you probably are going to be a little bit more kind, a little bit more curious about what that person does and that sort of thing. Right. Also, I also want to say that you can't look at it really as a monetary relationship. You know, right. I mean, I have given away so much free advice in the course of my career. And I think you just have to be willing to do that. I mean, in my first book, I put my actual personal email in the, at the end of the book. And I said, I have answered 301 questions but do you have mm. another one that i didn't answer and i will give you one free answer you know and right. so in that way it led to deeper and further research on my other books i learned a lot about people all over the country and what they were experiencing you know with their bosses their bad bosses <laughs> yeah. yeah right right that's hilarious well now i kind of want to transition to a little bit of kind of the current times that we're living in so what problems so a lot of people are working virtually now rather than in an office and there are a lot of people who are still able to get some work done so what problems are people going to be facing now in the virtual workplace that are different that they wouldn't experience if they were doing face-to-face? -face. Well, I think one thing is just focus. You know, it's very difficult. I'm finding it a bit challenging, I have to admit. It's difficult to transplant yourself and stay on track and stay focused and treat it like a full-time job. You know, mm -hmm. you're in different digs. You don't necessarily have like all the stuff you need necessarily at home. Maybe you do if you're organized. Maybe you don't. You know, and so I think part of it is just having the mindset, you know, treat it like it's a job, treat it like, oh, it's, it's a nine to five job. I'm going to take a break in the afternoon. You know, maybe I'll do some exercise in the afternoon and then I'm going to get back to it because otherwise, you know, it's not only the panic and it's not only the market craziness that's happening with the stock market, but it's also going to impact your productivity. Yeah, no doubt. And kind of what we what you mentioned beforehand is that you have to take it day by day. And and I really like what you just said. It made me think about this. If you get caught up in thinking how long this is going to last, then you're going to push off work because you're like, I'm going to have a lot of time to be able to do this so I can procrastinate now and wait till a little bit later on. But if you take it day by day and just define success today, then you're more likely, I feel like, to get some of those tasks done that you would otherwise push off if you think about it long term. Exactly. Don't think about it long term because, you know, we don't really know. And, you know, the political authorities, they don't really know. We don't know. It will be over when it's over. Right. Mm -hmm. But today I can make the most of my day. I mean, in theory, in theory, you should be more productive because you don't have to leave your house. Right. There's right. no commute time. You know, you can just roll in and like get on your computer. In theory, you should be getting like at least another hour out of the day. But it's very difficult with all the distractions. You know, the news is so horrible and, and it's just so every ever present. And I think that 
in part, you have to learn how to click it off. Like I allow myself one news break a day, one, and that's enough, you know? And then tomorrow I'll catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. I think the the conscious slash subconscious notion of I'm going to have more time leads to the result of the phrase that work expands to the time allotted for it. And, and so I think that is kind of a very pertainable to what you were just talking about. Another thing I wanted to ask is, so now that everybody is virtual, and a lot of people are, are working virtually more often anyway, so the, a lot of these questions are pertainable to real life when we're not quarantined. But in general, when is it better to email a coworker or a boss versus picking up the phone and giving them a call? Right. I love that question. Thank you so much for asking me that. I feel like every single person has their own individual style of communication that they prefer. You know, Mm -hmm. I personally prefer email to anything. I love email because it allows me to give the space to pause and think about what it is I want to reply, how to respond. I love email, you know, but I mean, every, everybody has their own stamp. Some people love to text, you know, we're here on a video chat, you know, I'm doing audio, you're on video. I mean, each person has their own thing. And I feel that as a professional, what is the most important thing is to figure out the person's personal communication stamp and do what they want to do. Meet them on their ground. You know, like I like email, but it doesn't matter what I like. It matters what a reporter likes, you know, or, right. or, or, or a client or, you know, somebody that I'm talking to. That's the thing that matters. You know, are they a Skype person or is, are they an email person or a phone person? Mm-hmm. So, you know, phone has some advantages. It definitely does because you can, you can control your tone of voice, and you can hear the person. And it's a kind of a bonding experience that's old-fashioned, you know, for a lot of us. It's kind of old-fashioned. And I've definitely had more phone calls in the last few days than I normally do, you know. But I feel like meet the person on their own ground, and then Mm -hmm. you'll have more successful business interaction with them. Right. So, I don't know, I just thought about this just the last second you were talking about meet the other person on their own ground. So like you said, everybody has their individual communication styles. So what if you love email, but one of your coworkers loves phone calls and hates email? How do you go about... I think you should meet them on their own ground. I think you should be fluent enough in Hmm. all different styles of communication and be able to kind of roll with it. I'm just saying, you know, a way to be more proactive and to get more done is to meet them on their ground, what they want to do. Hmm. I like that. I like that. So I know that a couple of my roommates have actually expressed this to me because they work virtual more often than not anyways. And so a lot of people are probably going to experience this. When you're not in an office space, you're not necessarily building the same kinds of relationships that you can if you are there in person and you do have more natural personal life talk. So what are some things that people can do now that they're working more virtually to make sure that they're keeping up with good rapport in the office, good, keeping up their good relationships and just keeping up with people's personal lives and that sort of thing. Well, I think, you know, just because we're in a crisis, I think just expressing that you hope 
that the people are safe and that they're well and that their families are well. I think I, I have started every single email that I've written, you know, asking about the other person's life and seeing how they're coping with the crisis. I think just knowing that somebody's empathetic and cares really helps really helps. I mean, this may last a long time and maybe my advice two months from now would be different, but right now it's early days and I right. would just be asking, you know, how are you? How, how is your family? You know, how are you coping before <clears throat> diving into any business? Gotcha. I like that. So, and this is, I want this question to be not targeted necessarily towards specifically because we're in quarantine at time, but just more specifically virtual virtual workplaces. What is the a biggest mistake that people will make when if their company transitions from in the office towards a, a virtual workplace? What's the biggest mistake that people originally make when that first transition happens? I think probably not realizing that every business is a people business, you know, we are, it's everything is a people business, whether or not you're with them in person or you're with them remotely on zoom, you know, every, every single one. So I think you just have to work very hard to remember that, you know, to remember. And I mean, even let's say with emails and I've talked about this, I've written about this in a different book than one of the ones you mentioned, but email, like it can quickly spiral out of control. It can get angry. It can flame up very fast. It's always, you know, you always have to remember that like cordiality and camaraderie are like the pillars that you're trying to deal with all the time. Those are sort of the pillars of any business. So you always want to keep it, keep it polite, keep it cordial. So basically kind of like you said in the last question, in order to keep the mindset that every business is a people business, then start off by expressing best wishes towards them or start off by, you don't have to ask something personal, but just be cordial with the other person, I guess. That's the best way to act upon making sure you keep it a people business. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's lots of, like with email, for example, there's lots of tricks because I would say because email so quickly devolves and the tone erodes so fast, I think one way, particularly with email, is that for example, some of sometimes with emails, I start them dear so-and-so, which is very old-fashioned, but I sometimes do anyway, and I always end saying something like best or best regards or something like that, something kind of old-fashioned, cordially I've used too occasionally. I mean, you, it doesn't just have to be boom, 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 boom with no, none of, you know, use those little words like please, thank you, cordially, you know, hi, just something so that it, Every email should have an, an open and a close, you know, mm -hmm. and also just to stay sane, it also helps us uh, change the subject line sometimes also, you know, yeah. so That's when you're on the phone, when you're on the phone with somebody or you're on zoom with somebody, it's also keeping that in mind that it just needs to be cordial and convivial and that you're working towards something, you know, and not being antagonistic. Gotcha. So we discussed one of the, maybe a struggle that you have in terms of keeping focus and the struggle that a lot of people have keeping focus from working from home. What do you think is maybe the biggest benefit that you have seen over the past week from working from home rather than going to an office? Well, I think it's just nice to know that you can do your work 
wherever you need to do it. Yeah. I mean, today I am in New York. I live and write in New York. I'm in Manhattan. And today there was an executive order for all businesses to close. And so it's kind of nice to know that you can pick up and go and do it at your home. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably a great kind of ease of mind sort of thing. Okay, so I'm going to transition a little bit into some of your personal experiences because I really dove a lot into this Bad Bosses, Crazy Coworkers and Other Office Idiots book, which is awesome. Um, what for you has maybe been the toughest boss that you've had to handle with and what are some of the strategies that you used in order to be able to deal with him or her? Well, I had many different tough bosses, but one okay. of them was um, a screamer, you know, and mm -hmm. I could hear him yelling through the walls. I mean, at everybody, I could hear it all the time because I was in the office that was right next to his and I could hear him. He had a very, very, very loud voice. We had real offices, so it actually went through the walls, not cubicles, like really right. through the walls. And that was kind of that was kind of challenging because first of all it was very distracting to hear all the noise all the time you know and also it was kind of guilt inducing because i could hear who, who he was yelling at and what he was saying and everything was terrible but then also that person who shall remain nameless also sometimes wanted me to do his dirty work like mm. he would he had a problem i was in advertising i was a writer i had an art director my boss wanted me to discuss with the art director problems that the boss was having with him, you know? Uh, and it is, so it would always happen after hours. It would be 7 PM. He'd call me in. He'd be like, I really want you to talk to that guy about this. And like, why isn't he here? And da, da, da. and you know, I felt like I was the go between. And then eventually I said to him, you know, I think it would be more effective actually if you talk to him, because if I talk to him for you, I'm just a buffer. And then it's easier for him to ignore the underlying thing that you're saying. And I think you should really have a powwow with each other and talk. And that was moderately effective as a technique. So he was a big screamer a lot of times because maybe he wasn't doing some of the work himself, but he was screaming at other people for doing work wrong. Yes. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. He was, he was screaming at other people for doing work wrong. So okay. that was, that was one example that I had that was, challenging you know but i've had several i mean oh, I, sure. I i worked um i've worked twice for different uh, alcoholics that was a struggle you know one of them would go out to lunch this is like a little bit in the old days they go out to lunch and then they'd sort of have a few drinks and then they come back and they would not, not necessarily remember what they said before they went out Oof. You know, this type of thing man that's tough that's tough so what do you do with it? What do you do when somebody doesn't remember what they said? Sometimes it's just, you have to figure out a system so that you can gently remind them, you know, because to accuse an alcoholic of being an alcoholic, oh, yeah. a terrible idea. You can't do that. And all my books, especially bad bosses, crazy coworkers and other office idiots advocate not going to HR with the problem. It's, I, I, I believe that, you know, the grass isn't greener at another company, you know, like I've had several alcoholic bosses in my life. Like there's just something, you know what I mean? You leave one company and then you work for another alcoholic boss. So you have to figure out like how to deal with that 
personality type, a way to gently remind them. Like maybe you write a list in the morning of what you agreed on, next steps. You email it to that person. You're just like, here are our next steps. The person comes back, they've changed their mind. You're like, well, at 10 o'clock this morning, you know, gently, we talked about such and such as a way to yeah, go yeah. forward. Gotcha. I, li- I really like what you said about how problems will come up again in different jobs that you have. So I really like your mindset on it to change yourself, equip yourself with your own skills and techniques to be able to apply because that assumes taking ownership and taking responsibility for the problem. And it's worrying about the thing that you can control rather than spending time worrying about the thing that you can't. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I don't really like bosses who look over my shoulder. You know, my mother sort of looked over my shoulder a lot (laughs) when I was growing up. And so that particular boss really rubs me the wrong way because I'm very organized and I don't need somebody like looking over my shoulder, but there are, you know, so that bothers me, but somebody else, maybe they do like a boss looking over their shoulder because they want to be guided step by step, you know? So the theory of the book is that each person has a different kind of a boss that drives them crazy and how to deal with that particular person to make the problem go away so that next time, you know, then you meet another problematic personality and you can open the book and look up what to do with that type of person. Yeah, I love it. It's not that the problem goes away. It's how you deal with it that that should change. Um, So like, like you mentioned early on, you moved around jobs a lot. And that was, I don't know if that's necessarily the nature of the industry that you were in or the nature of just how you kind of want it to be and, and stuff like that. But how did you determine when it was time to switch to a different role? Was it you wanted to learn a different skill? Was it you wanted to be around different people? What exactly was it that led you to being like, okay, now it's time to do something else? You mean to write books? Uh, no, no, no. You said early on, so you said early on how you bounce around different jobs a lot, you, different ad agencies, I guess. And, and so you were, so you always felt like you were job hunting. And so basically the question is, when you would decide to leave a job to go seek out another one, why was that? Ah, oh, well, there were myriad reasons. I mean, right. generally speaking, in advertising, you know, they pay you as low as they can. <laughs> so the only way to get ahead, at least when I was in it, was to sort of hop and hop mm. and hop. That way you could get up to sort of what you probably deserve to make. Um, so that was one huge reason. It was just, you know, being underpaid. Um, also, I used to work, and I'm, this is no exaggeration, I would work like seven days a week at most mm-hmm. of the places where I worked. It'd be a seven day a week job, you know, um, because they would always be pitching new business. And then when you're on a new business pitch, you have to come in on the weekends to do it. And, you know, Saturday bleeds into Sunday. And so actually, you know, you're working seven days a week and you're being paid for like four and a half kind of thing. So I, I really, I would often just try to leave to get better money. And then eventually also, you know, I mean, I rose in the industry and eventually I wanted, you know, teams and I wanted to pass on learning to other people. I wanted to grow. So there were lots and lots and lots of different reasons why. A lot of people in the advertising business, it it does often, even when it's full time, a lot of people 
it feels like it's freelance often, you know? Gotcha. Yeah, no, I understand that. I'm, I'm sure that every time you leave is probably for a little bit different scenario. And there's always a, a number of reasons as to why you actually leave any particular one thing. And so one, so one of the books that you've written is called 301 Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions. And as we've discussed a lot, you've hopped around from job to job a lot. So you've had a lot of interviews. What is maybe one of the toughest interview questions that it took you a long time to figure out exactly how to answer? And yeah, let's just leave it at that. So, so I think that the, the toughest one is when somebody says, what do you think about Tom Smith? I'm just making up the name, you know? It's like, let's say Tom Smith is your boss and the other person knows your boss. And there you are because it's a close, tightly knit industry. And there you are at a different ad agency applying for a job and they know your boss. What do you think mm. about this person? I think it's very, very like a trick question almost because right. maybe your boss is a screamer or whatever. And maybe that's the reason why you want to leave the job, right? But you can't say any of that. I mean, a job interview is your moment to shine to show yourself in the best possible light that you could possibly can, you know? And you never want to badmouth anybody. You never want to say anything negative. Even if you have left a job under duress, you don't want to say why exactly. Mm -hmm. You want to spin it so that the person realizes that you're carrying forward a lesson, you know? Mm -hmm. And you have to, I think, I think when you go to a job interview, you have to be prepared for the trick questions, how you know somebody or why you left a job or why you weren't happy in a particular situation. You have to be prepared for that, but you also have to put the best possible light on the situation and talk about what you learned from the experience, what you're carrying forward. I like it. I like it. So one thing I did before uh, a few days ago, actually, is I took a picture of this book, The Bad Bosses, Crazy Coworkers, and Other Office Idiots, and I sent it to a lot of my listeners. And I said, is there anybody that you would like to ask me, ask her how you should handle them? So I have a few questions that, that people have. So one was a, uh, an individual who has a more experienced coworker who's a little bit older, who's been with the company for a long time, who's kind of gotten complacent with her spot in the, in the company. She doesn't quite work as hard because she kind of knows where she is. She kind of knows she's up in at that upper echelon of the company. She's a little bit rude, a little bit arrogant, and she knows she has so many contacts and knows she can almost kind of do whatever. So basically, she's more experienced, kind of arrogant, a little bit rude, and complacent and doesn't work that hard. How do you handle communicating with that person? Is this person below the person who wrote to you or above her? Is this person her boss? It's not a boss, but it's someone who is above. Okay, so the arrogant person is below? The arrogant person's above. Oh, is above, is above. Okay, so this is very tricky. Okay, so if the person is above, I do not think it is wise to confront the person directly. I think it is a better tactic to, because if the person, that's what happens. People do get kind of, um, entrenched and they do become kind of arrogant and they do become a little bit um, sure of themselves. But if the person's above you, I would say it's kind of dangerous to tackle it directly. It's, it's not that smart to tackle it directly. Just 
you should know that other people in the company are realizing it also. You are not alone. And I would say, wait for somebody else to tackle that situation. However, I just want to say, if the person is below you, there are many things you can do. Gotcha. And so if, if you're kind of like waiting for somebody else during that time while you're waiting, if possible, should you just try to not, I guess, interact with that person as much as possible? Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay to say, um, you know, selectively, hey, I thought that was a little bit brusque. You seemed a bit brusque with me the other day. You know, are you okay? Is something bothering you? You know, that type of thing, Uh, the soft getting at it, I think is fine. But the global getting at it saying, you know, your attitude has really changed in the last three years since I've known you or whatever, that I would avoid if the person is above you. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Another, another, Another scenario is that this person wants to know about somebody who is on par, same level as them within the company. And they're just kind of overall pretty lazy, but they're just don't really take advice and they don't hop on board with the plan that as a team they come together with. They kind of are, I would probably say a little bit resentful of the plan itself, but yeah, they just kind of don't really take advice and don't hop on board with the vision of the team. Right. Well, I mean, the first thing is, can you isolate that person so that they don't have to be on the team? Because that person is a morale downer. Mm-hmm. And I think you don't want really downers to be on the team questioning, nitpicking every single team decision. You don't want that. So one thing I would try to see is if there's a way to not have the person be on the team. But if there isn't, and there may not be, I think I think that needs to be addressed. I think, you know, everything with politics is best handled during a quiet moment of low stress, Right. When the person lashes out and says, well, I don't want to do it that way. That seems stupid or whatever. That is not the time to talk to that person about it. The time to talk to it is later, maybe three days later, during a quiet moment on a Friday afternoon when nothing else is happening. Hey, can I talk to you? I kind of feel like there's a certain resistance coming from you to on all of the team decisions and I respect your right to disagree, but when it's like constant the way it has been, I feel like it's really hurting team morale. And I'm wondering if we can, you know, talk about, is there some underlying thing that's bothering you that's making you sort of lash out in meetings, this type of thing, but over a cup of coffee. I mean, it may be better to go outside, you know, out, well, today you have to, but outside the building and discuss it. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I think a lot of times people do try to bring things up in a bad scenario in a bad time when if you take the time during a quiet time of low stress, then it's you already are going to be 10 times probably more effective no matter what it is that you're going to say just by simply the time that you bring it up. Right. Right. I mean, I talk a lot about in that book, I talk a lot about bullies and stuff. Mm -hmm. I just want to say to any listener who's being bullied, you know, by their boss, if you're being bullied by your boss, don't bring it up at the moment that you're being bullied. It's better Mm -hmm. to like hang tough. You know, if he's picking on you in front of a group, don't bring it up right there and say, oh, you're always bullying me. I can't stand it. You know, that's the worst thing to do. Like you need to wait until a quiet moment to bring it up. Yeah, I like that a lot. 
And so the third and final one that I picked out that people talked about is this one isn't necessarily another employee or coworker that they dislike, but the person that is communicating is younger and the other person that they're talking about is older, but not necessarily above them in the company. Right. They're kind of the same level, just older and been with the company longer. And so this younger person has been with the company about two to three years and finds a a number of times where they disagree with this person's idea or their plan of action, but is unsure of exactly how to approach that and, and communicate to her about that because he thinks that she's wrong or doesn't like that plan of action or disagrees. How does somebody who's younger on the same level go about kind of approaching that in a respectful manner? It's very tricky. You know, it depends on whether or not there are other people involved in the decision, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's just, if it's just like she has an older person who's making all the decisions and then she disagrees with them, I think during a quiet moment, she needs to sort of rationally explain like a different methodology, maybe a different way they could work together. Um, But if there are other people involved, you know, it changes the dynamic quite a bit. I mean, it might be better, a better tactic might be like, if there are other people involved in the decision, it might be better to try to talk to them about it and try to have a group decision made, you know, to avoid Mm -hmm. it, especially if she doesn't get along with her. Gotcha. Okay. Good deal. Good deal. So in the back of the book, basically the conclusion is the secret of getting along with just about anyone. And you kind of boil down the gist of the book to this statement of become less sensitive to other people's criticisms and considerably more sensitive to the way in which you deliver criticism to others. And you kind of bring up this awesome quote by Abraham Lincoln that says, we should be too big to take offense and too noble to give it. And I'm going to start off, or I just want to kind of address the first one more than anything, because I feel like that's one of the things that everybody has such a difficult time to, and it can kind of lead to being more critical yourself. How can we start to not be so sensitive to other people's criticisms? Are there kind of things that we can do in order to try to not be so sensitive? Yeah. I First of all, thank you for asking me that question. It's a fantastic question. Yeah. Like one of the guys I used to work for he never, ever, ever complimented any of the work I did, you know, mm-hmm. like I worked for him for years and he never said, oh, good job. Or, oh, I really like this ad, Vicky or anything, you know, and I just in order to to deal with him, I just had to do it myself. You know, I had to say to myself, that was a really good ad that I wrote, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes like the lack of a compliment is actually a compliment because it's like you're doing fine, you know? And so the person just is is terrible in their own communication style and that doesn't remember to tell you, you know? The person doesn't remember to tell you. Sometimes, you know, you work for somebody and he or she barks at you, you know what I mean? And it's just their terrible communication style. It has nothing to do with you. So some of it is a little bit of self-talk. You have to say to yourself, I know I'm doing a good job because I'm getting raises and I'm doing good performance evaluations and I know I'm advancing, so I must be doing a good job. And I just, I'm doing a good job. And you just have to say it to yourself until you believe it, you know? So don't look for your approval so much from other people. It has to come from within and don't depend on somebody to to be a good boss. Mm. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna stay on, stay on the same kind of question. Was there has there been a time where you did receive a lot of criticism and it it did affect you in the in the moment and a little bit after and it kind of took a while to get over and basically the question is how did you end up getting over the sensitivity of the criticism that you received? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, of course I've received criticism and I, the way that I believe that helps me and that I believe helps is if you get criticism, write an action plan with that person, okay? Mm. Whatever it is, like if they say to you, oh, I didn't like the way that you presented that in the meeting, you know, figure out, okay, let's talk about what I should have said. Let's talk about what I could do. And will you pay for me to go to public speaking classes? You know, try to get an agreement. This is my big advice. Try to get an agreement from that person, how you're going to change, what they expect, how you're going to change, and what can they give you to get better at it? Mm, I absolutely love that because, because again, it kind of goes back to when you get criticized, whether or not you agree necessarily with their criticism, but you do this, you're taking responsibility for it and you're asking for their advice, because obviously if they give you criticism, then they think in some way they could help you or they could do it better themselves. And if you ask for it, then they'll hopefully either give you some good advice and, and help you out, or they'll realize that maybe they were too critical. Yes. But the other thing is, don't forget to do get a timeline, you know? So mm. if the, let's just take that. Okay. I, I didn't like the way you, you handle that meeting. Okay. All right, great. Let's talk about it. What did I do right and what did I do wrong? Okay. Oh, okay. I, this is what I did wrong. Terrific. There's another meeting coming up in a month. Will you come with me to the meeting to see if I improve? You know, like make a timeline for your own improvement and have the other person buy into it with you so that then in a month after that meeting, you can say to him or her, How did you like that meeting? Did you think it went smoother? Did you think it went better? You know, what did the client say? So that would be like one, one thought on it. Like try to get them to buy into a time, like the timeline for your own improvement. And then on the flip side of that, I just want to add, if you are working for somebody and you don't have any idea how you're doing, right? Which often happens because let's say you work for somebody and they never say great job or whatever, and you don't know. Right. Right. Then I advocate going in and making a time to sit down and just like check in, do a quick check in. Do you mind if we have a quick check in on my, you know, how I'm doing? I'd love to know. Um, how are you fixed for next Monday at 11 o'clock? Would that work? It'll only take five minutes, but I'm just, you know, really curious to know. This is what I would like to do because here, here's the thing what you don't want to happen, you don't want to work for somebody for a year not know how you're doing and get nailed in the review. Yeah. You want to check in seemingly relatively casually, you know, a few times before your review so that if there are issues, if there are problems, you can make micro adjustments working with them on a timeline for your own improvement. Then you will get better reviews and you will get better raises. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I think that's really important. So a few last questions here, getting down on time. So kind of a little bit more pertaining to 
to today, there's probably going to be a lot of people who were who were laid off because of this whole this whole experience, the whole coronavirus and everything like that. And people afterwards, once we return to a, lo- a little bit of normalcy, are going to be looking to get back into the job market again and doing interviews and that sort of thing. If you could give one piece of advice to somebody who had been laid off during this time and is going out looking for a job, what would that piece of advice be? My first piece of advice is it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Like it may hurt, it may sting, but it's not your fault. This is like a government mandated shutdown of businesses. This has nothing to do with you or your performance. Okay. This is like a a government mandated layoff, you know? And so when you go out there again and you talk about it with people, uh, you know, it's not your fault. You don't need to be defensive about it, you know, and, and just go back to always, you know, it may be like six months from now or something, go back to, you know, the coronavirus spread, the coronavirus pandemic, talk about it like that. When the coronavirus pandemic struck, I was laid off. And always talk in terms of, you know, percentages. You can talk about a layoff in terms of percentages or absolute numbers. And when you do that, you should talk about it in a way that makes it sound highest. So if 50% of the workforce where you are was laid off, talk about that, you know? Or if it's like 100 people who were let go, talk about that. Whichever sounds worse and highest, discuss it that way to get more empathy and sympathy working towards you. Also, mm-hmm. it's not your fault, but if it happened, this is the moment now to be thinking about who your contacts are, who your friends are in the business, who do you know, who, who, who do your friends know, who do your parents know, who does everybody know? This is the time to burnish your LinkedIn profile, make it shine, you know, really work at getting a job so it won't be lasting too long, the unemployment period. Mm. I like those. Great tips. Great tips. So down to the last couple questions. And so it's going to have a little bit different feel to it. So I believe that in order to become the best version of yourself, it's really important to try to gain clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like and what the best version of yourself is capable of. And then to try to reverse engineer that person and make that person a reality. That's the way that I view it. And that's the way that I approach every single day. And that's the goal kind of of this podcast for people to gain clarity and get tools and tips to get closer to the best version of themselves. So I want to ask for you personally, is there a particular skill or piece of knowledge that you can see the best person of yourself having or knowing that you don't currently have? That's a great question. I I don't know. I I know that I'm wiser now than I used to be. And, you know, I try to look at it as a quest for wisdom for myself and also for giving good advice, you know, for being wise on behalf of other people. So I'm not sure. I know I'm growing and changing, and I think everybody should grow and change as much as they can. Hmm. I like it. I like it. Well, before I ask the last question, uh, I want to acknowledge you because there were a handful of times during this interview where you basically your approach to a lot of your career development expertise is taking responsibility and taking ownership for the different issues that you have because you can't, and we, we talked about it a couple of times. You can't 
worry about the things that you can't control. But if you take ownership and responsibility, then you're worrying about the things that you can control because those scenarios are going to come up again. And once you equip yourself with the skills and the knowledge or whatever, the expertise, then you can apply those things when the problems do arise again. And I think that's what a lot of your work is, is equipping people with doing, get, gaining those skills and, and pieces of knowledge that they can apply when their problem that they're currently in continues or arises again. Exactly. It's like a karma thing almost. You know, yeah. you keep running into the same personality types who keep driving you crazy. And until you learn how to master that person, it, that you're still going to keep running into that person. No doubt. No doubt. So everybody's going to absolutely love this interview. They need to go back and, and make sure you take notes because there's a lot of actionable stuff and, and things that you can start applying now during this quarantine life. And once you get outside and you and you start getting back in the office, hopefully when this thing finishes up hopefully sooner rather than later and i know people are going to want to go get this book so make sure that you go to vickioliver.com um, you can get see the list of all her books uh, a few of which that i mentioned what are some other places that they can maybe go learn more about you and support you um okay so my website is vickioliver.com and vicky's with a y and they can go on amazon and buy the books and other places where books are sold and uh, there's a lot of other information on my website that I think is kind of helpful for people too, especially if you are in a job search right now, articles and things like that that you can look at. Perfect. I like it. All right. So the last question is I believe that getting closer to the best version of yourself is a constant journey. And I think it's a unique journey. I don't think we're ever there. And I also think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So what I want to ask again for you personally is if there are three things that you can currently do or currently work on to get closer to that best version of yourself, to get closer to that best version of Vicki Oliver that you can be, what are those three things that you would currently do or currently work on? Well, I, I'm a writer, so I'm always working on my writing. You know, I always want to write better. I want to be informative, but I also want to write better and have it more interesting to read and more fun to read, but while staying informative. I also want to increase my focus. And I think I'm just gonna leave it at that. You know, I actually believe that if you write fewer resolutions, they actually happen more. And, you know, sometimes I think less is more. Yeah, yeah, the law, the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Well, that's all we got. I appreciate it so much, Vicki. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated talking to you and being here. Good stuff. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this amazing episode with Vicki. I know all of you out there have someone in your office that you might not get along with. Use something from this episode to improve your relationship with them. Make sure you send this episode to someone who is always complaining to you about their boss or other coworkers. This will give them so many great tools to improve those relationships as well. And be sure to check out all of Vicki's amazing books at VickiOliver.com. Remember, if you get criticized, don't let that person get away with it unscathed. Address them by asking what you can do to do better next time. See if they come up with an answer. Odds are they'll apologize for criticizing you or they'll actually give you some clarity as to how to improve things. But for now, it's time. It's time to take action. It's time to improve your relationships to start communicating better inside and outside the workplace, allowing you to get closer and closer to your best you.